Hello and welcome to News Hour from the BBC World Service. We're coming to you live from London. I'm James Menendez. In a moment, Keir Cook. And then later, the fate of the American soldier who wandered away from his unit was captured by the Taliban and later swapped for foreign fighters by President Obama. Well, he's pleaded guilty today to desertion. Plus, the investigative journalist on the island of Malta killed when her car blew up earlier today. We'll also be reporting from the Basque region of Spain after years of separatist violence. Do they still want independence? Plus, why are scientists across the globe so excited about this sound? That pop represents a first for humanity. We'll explain all in 15 minutes' time. But we start in Kirkuk. There have been fears that this city in northern Iraq could be the focus of conflict for a long time. It's home to different groups, Kurds, Arabs and Turkmen, and it's sitting on plenty of oil. When so-called Islamic State took over large swathes of Iraq three years ago, it was Kurdish fighters, the Peshmerga, that prevented IS taking control of Kirkuk. And they stayed, even though the city is outside Iraqi Kurdistan. But now many of those fighters have retreated in the face of an advance by Iraqi government troops and Shia militia. They now control most of the city. And that's forced many residents of Kirkuk to leave. The BBC's Orla Guerin is there. Well, I'm standing at the edge of the main road in Kirkuk and there is a real exodus taking place. An endless stream of cars now coming down the road heading out of the city in the direction of Erbil. We've seen people with bedding and belongings on top of their cars. We've seen people with frightened children on their laps. We've just had a bus go by. An elderly woman who was almost in tears told us that she didn't dare to remain in the city. The opposite side of the road, the traffic going forward into the city, is almost non-existent. I've seen one or two cars driving at high speed, perhaps people coming to pick up their families. What's been very noticeable here in the last few hours is a, is a real sense of the city preparing for a conflict. Our Middle East correspondent Ola Guerin. Well, there's another factor at play in this complex situation. The recent referendum on independence held in Iraqi Kurdistan to the fury of the government in Baghdad. So how did Iraqi government forces manage to take control of Kirkuk relatively easily? Why did those Kurdish fighters pull back? I've been speaking to Iraqi Kurdish political analyst Abdullah Hawes. Basically because there has been an agreement between Kurdish faction who has influence in Kirkuk and the Iraqi government. This is why they haven't fought and they retreated and they handed over the city to the Iraqi forces. And what was there, before we get on to who exactly they are, what was their motive for coming to that agreement? Was it simply that they just didn't want to fight to defend Kirkuk or are they quite close to Baghdad? I think there are more than one reason. Obviously, they didn't want to fight because there would have been a lot of casualties, but also because historically the faction who has been in control of Kirkuk has been close to Iran. 
And the Iraqi government is also close to Iran. So both sides are, have historical ties to Iran. So I think this is one of the major reasons, as there are a lot of news, which some of it is unconfirmed, but it indicates that Iran has a role in brokering this agreement between the Iraqi government and the Kurdish faction who's leading in Kirkuk. And what relation is this group, this Kurdish faction, to the rest of Iraqi Kurdistan and the group that organized the recent referendum on independence. So the group who's in charge in Kirkuk are called PUK and they are predominantly led by Talabani family, who was the president of Iraq. That so was Jalal Talabani. Jalal Talabani, exactly. And they're in control of Kirkuk and another city called Sulaimaniyah. And the referendum led by a rival party called KDP, which is led by Masoud Barzani, who is the president of Kurdistan region. He is in control of Erbil and Duhok, which is another city at the border with Turkey. So Barzani is a more nationalist figure. He was leading the referendum and a lot of people saw the referendum as a project of Barzani to consolidate his power. A lot of figures in PUK, Talabani's family, were unhappy actually with the referendum. They didn't want it to go ahead. They actually initially accepted the referendum, but they were very hesitant. Their base was not with it, and their media was actually kind of playing opposition role in the referendum process. What do we think the PUK might have got out of this deal with Baghdad? Because I imagine for them, giving up control of Kirkuk is quite a big deal, isn't it? I don't think they have fully given up control of Kirkuk. Apparently, there would be a joint administration by Kurds who would be from PUK and Baghdad. And they would also get part of the share of the oil fields with Baghdad. And the full agreement is actually still unclear. But I assume that would give them more power over Kirkuk and Suleimaniyah as they were losing popularity in these two areas to the opposition groups. So by signing this agreement with Baghdad, they want to consolidate their power in the areas that they have influence at. And how much of a blow then is this for Mr. Bazani? I think it's quite a huge blow because, first of all, that will end his dream of Kurdish statehood. Because what we have seen in the media was sort of like a humiliating loss by the Kurdish forces while they were retreating at the face of Iraqi forces. The other thing is, basically, by doing this, PUK has effectively split Kurdistan into two administrations, which makes the project of Kurdish statehood quite unrealistic and difficult. Yes, that was going to be my next question. Can there be, both politically and economically, because of Kirkuk's importance to the oil industry, can there be an independent Kurdistan in Iraq without Kirkuk? Obviously, there can be, but economically, it won't be viable without Kirkuk because without having this oil, I don't think Iraqi Kurdistan is able to have enough cash or to have an economy that can live, especially because Iraqi Kurdistan, KRG is landlocked and they are surrounded by hostile countries. So without having a natural resource, I don't think they have enough infrastructure for tourism, for agriculture. So basically, this is their only mean to actually build an economy and build uh, institutions for a successful state. Otherwise, they would be just a failed state like other states in the Middle East. Iraqi Kurdish political analyst uh, Abdullah Hawez. So what about the role of the United States in all this? Well, speaking in the past couple of hours, uh, this is what President Trump had to say. We don't like the fact that they're clashing. We're not taking sides, but we don't like the fact that they're clashing.
And that was it. Well, the Kurdish Peshmerga troops have been at the forefront of the US-led coalition against so-called Islamic State. Salme Khalizab was US ambassador to Iraq between 2005 and 2007. I asked him if he thinks it appears that the US have sold the Kurdish forces down the river, given the sacrifices they've made against IS. Well, I'm sure the Kurds are disappointed. Uh, They would have liked uh, uh, US support last night to prevent the Iraqi forces from coming into Kirkuk. Uh, But uh, the U.S. uh, was disappointed in Kurds uh, to go ahead with uh, the referendum. The U.S. pressed the Kurds not to do so. Uh, But I believe that the U.S. is in a difficult situation because uh, two friends are at loggerheads with each other. And I think the U.S. is trying to end the conflict, the fighting, and to start a dialogue between uh, the Kurdish government in uh, Erbil and Baghdad. Uh, two friends, but it seems like they've chosen the government in Baghdad as their best friend. Well, I, uh, that is unclear. Uh, I'm sure the attack came as a surprise uh, to the U.S. They were uh, working to facilitate a political deal in which perhaps uh, Baghdad will gain some uh, influence or some presence in areas that were disputed, uh, but uh, that had come under control of uh, Erbil after the fight with ISIS. Uh, But nevertheless, I believe that the U.S. regard both as friends, and uh, it will try to uh, uh, get a diplomatic process started, uh, recognizing that Baghdad is now in a stronger position than it was 24 hours ago. Uh, and in terms of the, the motives of the Baghdad government, I mean, do you see this uh, purely as revenge for the independence referendum? Well, I don't know uh, whether it is. It's, uh, I'm sure, influenced the timing by that. But uh, 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 once the ISIS problem was over, the divide the Iraqis, Kurds and Arabs would have come to the forefront because ISIS brought them together. And uh, it would have been difficult for Baghdad to accept a unilateral uh, change in the disputed areas by uh, uh, Kurdish occupation of those areas. Maybe the timing was affected, but the dispute over these areas were inevitable. Uh, Why is the U.S. so opposed to to Kurdish independence? Well, the U.S. is not uh, opposed uh, to uh, Kurdish independence. The U.S. has said repeatedly that it has to be a, a, as a result of a negotiated agreement if there is to be independence. And a couple of days before the referendum, the U.S. made a serious effort uh, to make an offer uh, to the Kurds consisting of uh, delay the referendum. Uh, we will engage uh, uh, in a negotiation with you, meaning the Kurds and with Baghdad. And if there is no agreement There can be a referendum in a year or so, and the issue of independence should be an element of the discussion with Baghdad and could be uh, the the result of the referendum a year later. Uh, The U.S. was disappointed that that offer was not taken. What about uh, Iran? Do you see uh, its hand uh, in all this, given the closeness between the, the government in Baghdad and Iran and the fact that Iran's always been opposed to Kurdish independence, hasn't it? Yes, both Iran and Turkey have been opposed, uh, but Iran has been uh, uh, very active, particularly the Quds Force uh, and its commander, uh, 
General Soleimani has been in Iraq. I think uh, this plan of attack probably is in part as a result of Iranian pressure on uh, Iraq. And it appears uh, that uh, Iran is going to gain if uh, the war continues and if the Kurds uh, suffer further setbacks. Uh, the Kurds may have to look at their uh, future options if the U.S. and the West doesn't come to the assistance, what it might do. Unfortunately, the history of Kurdistan or the Kurds have been one of uh, changing size internally and globally. And just in a sentence or two, I mean, do you think Iraq will hold together? Will it be one country in, in 10 years or is this the situation going to get worse and there's going to be a conflict around, for example, Kirkuk? It really will depend on the decision that Abadi makes uh, in the coming few days, whether it's going to push its advantage, further destabilize Kurdistan, take over more territories, or would it be wise and now enter into negotiations and be generous in its negotiations? And the record, however, makes one be pessimistic about the prospects for unity in Iraq. And that was Zalmay Khalizad, a U.S. ambassador to Iraq between 2005 and 2007. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. Still to come on the programme are e-bikes, the future of cycling. It feels like cycling a normal mountain bike, actually. And then if you push the up button, you get more support. Aha, yes. I feel a slight boost. Exactly. Wow, that's quite nice, actually. <laughs> and now I'm off. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But a Dutch police right when they say that older cyclists should think twice before jumping on an e-bike. That report from the Netherlands coming up in about 10 minutes' time. Our main headlines this hour. Iraqi government forces have taken control of the previously Kurdish-held city of Kirkuk after a brief military operation. And a car bomb in Malta has killed an investigative journalist who had highlighted alleged government corruption. More on that in five minutes' time. Plus, an American soldier, Bo Bergdahl, who was held for five years by the Taliban, has pleaded guilty to desertion and misconduct. We'll also have more on that coming up in the second half. This is James Menendez with News Hour from the BBC. Now to some space science that'll blow your mind. It involves the collision of two dead stars called neutron stars. It happened 130 million years ago when dinosaurs still roam the Earth. Uh, neutron star collisions are thought to have produced all the gold and platinum that exists in the universe. Well, this giant shudder in space and time has been watched for the first time by a team of researchers on Earth. Their work's just been unveiled today. Our science correspondent, Palab Ghosh, was with them in Louisiana. This is the actual sound picked up of two dead stars in orbit around each other, coming closer and closer until they collide to release a huge blast of energy. In the landscape campus of one of the laboratories that made the detection, a fountain sprays jets of water skyward, which are pulled back down by gravity, sending ripples across the crystal-clear pond. The LIGO detector in the vast woodland of Livingston in Louisiana was designed to detect gravitational waves, ripples across the universe created by cataclysmic cosmic events. 
It consists of a small building with two two-and-a-half-mile pipelines stretching out of it at 90 degrees to each other. Inside each pipe is a powerful laser, accurately measuring any change in its length. I walk along one of them with Professor Norna Roberts from Caltech in Pasadena, who helped design the instrument's detection system. Over this two and a half miles, we expect um, a gravitational wave to only move the mirrors much, much less than the size of an atom. It's really incredibly small. Norna and her colleagues have made the first ever detection of the gravitational waves given off by the collision of two neutron stars. These are stars that have died and collapsed in on themselves. They're as massive as our sun, but their size is only a few kilometres in, in radius. And if you took a spoonful of that material, it would weigh something like a billion tonnes. Inside, I get changed into surgical scrubs so as not to contaminate the high-precision instrument. In the control room, there are an array of screens. One of the technicians, William Katzman, tells me how they monitor the system's every detail. This tells us everything that we need to know about the instrument. We have a screen that tells us how the interferometer is behaving at any um, given time, how the signal is coming in. We also have cameras to see how the laser looks inside the tubes. And on one of the screens, telescopes capture the actual images of the collision. PhD student Jennifer Wright talks me through it. So now we're seeing this very big explosion that we call a kilonova, and this is actually an electromagnetic um, observation, and it's called a kilonova because it's a thousand times brighter than other star explosions that we've seen before. And this is the point that the gold and platinum are made? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's, it's really cool, actually. So we can actually look at some of the follow-up observations. We can see the spectra of gold and platinum in them. Um, and so we know that that's being produced there. Within seconds of the detection, telescopes from across the world captured the event in incredible detail. It took place 130 million years ago, when dinosaurs roamed the Earth. It's so far away that the light and gravitational waves have only just reached us. Professor Gabby Gonzalez, who's been working on the project for 30 years here at LIGO, explained what the detection meant to her. It's hundreds of people that work on this every day. And we have been working on this for decades, and we will be working on this for decades more. It makes us proud, proud of being such a big collaborative team, making things work, and having so many great results to share. The detector system is now being upgraded, and so there are likely to be many more discoveries of objects that we have not yet even imagined. Our science correspondent Palab Ghosh reporting. Journalism can be a dangerous business. 27 reporters have been killed this year already in the course of their work. But it's rare in the European Union, which is why the death of the leading investigative journalist on the Mediterranean island of Malta is so shocking. Daphne Caruana Galizia was killed shortly after she left home when her car exploded. The Maltese Prime Minister, Joseph Muscat, called it a barbaric attack. 
He and his wife were, in fact, the subject of one of Galizia's many investigations into corruption. Well, I've been speaking to one of her colleagues. Rachel Attard is news editor of the Malta Independent, for which Galicia wrote a column. First of all, her reaction to what's happened. This is completely horrible. It is a threat on journalism, on Maltese journalism, on democracy and on freedom of, of speech. Whoever is behind this, this whole murder, um, needs to be not just seen as a murder on a person, on a mother, but also on an institution, which is journalism, which is obviously the mo- one of the kingpins of democracy. Did you know uh, Daphne personally? Yes, I did, because she is a regular columnist on our newspaper and she used to write for us every week. And also, we used to produce a magazine with her. So, yes, I know her. Uh, And what sort of uh, woman, what sort of reporter was she? Uh, And I guess leading on from that, why would someone want to, to kill her? She was an investigative journalist, uh, first and foremost, and she had her own her own blog. We must admit that she she did have a, a number of people who disagreed with her way of writing. She used to investigate, uh, and obviously there are the proper institutions where you can go and uh, defend your name. But she was first and foremost an investigative journalist. Just give us a bit more detail about what she was like uh, as a person. I mean, one thinks of investigative reporters as being pretty. Fearless, pretty brazen. Was that her? Yes, it was her. And uh, she had extremely good writing skills. She had a political nose in the sense that she she was a good, good journalist. I mean, she was very brave, I would say. Had she made many enemies from uh, the investigations that she'd carried out? I mean, I know she certainly went after the Prime Minister, Joseph Muscat, didn't she? Not just, but uh, yeah, but he was one of the persons and uh, even with the new opposition leader, yes, as well. I wouldn't use the word enemy per se in the sense that uh, when you're a journalist, you go the whole hawk, whatever it takes, but you just want the truth to come out. And obviously, when you're in this job, as I've been for 20 years, you create enemies as much as friends, I guess. Uh, But do you think it was her work investigating corruption in political circles that may be behind this? Or was it other elements, organised crime, for example? Well, it's. uh, I would love to answer that, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, what happened is horrible, whether it was organized crime or whether this was an incident, a murder related to her work as a journalist. And how much confidence do you have in the authorities that they'll get to the bottom of this? Hmm. (laughs) Uh, You know, as a journalist, you always be skeptic. Let's be positive for once. Let's hope that the authorities will will show us that they really mean business and uh, will get justice very, very soon. I mean, this is, it didn't just shock Malta. It shocked Europe. And that was uh, Rachel Attard, news editor of uh, the Malta Independent. Uh, Daphne Caruana Galizia wrote a column for the paper. Uh, she was killed today after her car exploded uh, close to her home. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC World Service. Do stay with us. We've got much more to come in the next half hour of the programme. You're listening to a podcast edition of News Hour, available twice every day, straight after the live edition of the programme. And if you're enjoying this, then why not take a look at other podcasts from the BBC World Service? The documentary brings to life stories and investigations from across the globe. 
or witness remarkable first-hand accounts from important moments in history. Coming up next, the American soldier who left his colleagues and was captured by the Taliban pleads guilty to desertion. But first, to the Netherlands, because police there are warning older cyclists of the dangers of switching to electric bikes after an increase in the number of deaths on the roads. E-bikes have both a battery and an electric motor, so help riders speed along with less effort than a traditional bike. From the Netherlands, Anna Holligan reports. It's not unusual to see people in their 70s pedalling in the Netherlands. It's been an actual lifesaver for me. Susan bought her first e-bike two weeks ago. Being able to get around faster, I'm starting a business and I have a studio on the other side of this bridge. On this e-bike, it takes me six to seven minutes to get there. And on my old bike, you know, no matter how low a gear I had it in, uh, when my legs were tired or the wind was going, I had to really work hard and I would arrive also at appointments and meetings, sweating, and if I have to go to the other side of the city, it's, it's really quite intensive biking. But the police officer responsible for road safety said some elderly people lack the ability and don't realise it's not a normal bike. Do you feel at all patronised that the police are talking about mandatory courses on how to manage them? That feels a little bit discriminatory to me or or putting the focus on the wrong group. Um, Look at the real problems, which is also, to be honest with you, texting while on the bike. According to Statistics Netherlands, of the 629 people killed in road accidents in 2016, 189 were cyclists and 28 were riding e-bikes. With every new thing on the market, accidents will increase in in the first years. Dennis Arts is from the ANWB Road Users Association. Actually, we disagree with the police in this sense. A lot of people in Holland cycle, and they cycle for many years, and we learn it by doing at a very young age. And the the e-bikes is is an excellent thing for uh, commuting from home to work. You want to get on one? Yeah, cool. I think so. Yeah. Emil Bloch is an expert at this. He runs Holland Bike Tours. Well, that's pretty simple. So you have only three buttons on the bi- on the bicycle. This is the power button. If you press press it for a couple of seconds, and you can see the screen lights up. Foot on the pedal, and I'm just going to push down like yeah. my own bike. Okay. It feels like cycling a normal mountain bike, actually. So this is ordinary cycling, and then if you push. The upper button, you get more support. Aha, yes. I feel a slight boost. Exactly. Wow, that's quite nice, actually. <laughs> and now I'm off. Yeah. <laughs> wow. We did ask the police for an interview, but they didn't have anyone available. Emil Block believes the best person to decide whether they need a course or not is the one who's on the bike. I don't think the e-bike is a dangerous thing. It's just more and more people are getting on one. And then, of course, obviously, you have more accidents. Emile Bloch, who teaches uh, e-bike techniques, ending that report by our Netherlands correspondent Anna Hollick. And you're listening to News Hour from the BBC. This is the BBC Broadcasting Live from London. You're listening to News Hour with James Menendez. Now to the case of the uh, American soldier who walked away from his remote outpost in Afghanistan and was captured and held prisoner by the Taliban for five years. My name is Bo Burko. I was born on March 28, 1986, in the city of Sun Valley, in the state of Idaho. My rank 
is a private first class in the Bible First Unit based in Fort Richardson, Alaska. Just a fragment of audio from a December 2009 recording released by the Taliban purporting to show Sergeant Bergdahl six months after his detention at the hands of militants. But it was the circumstances surrounding that capture that raised eyebrows and led some in uniform to accuse him of desertion or worse. He was released as part of a controversial prisoner swap in May 2014 when then-President Obama agreed to release five Taliban prisoners in order to secure Mr Bergdahl's release. Well, today at a military tribunal in North Carolina, he pleaded guilty to desertion and endangering his comrades. But why would he do that after maintaining for years that he simply got lost and was then captured? I've been speaking to senior reporter for the Army Times, uh, Megan Myers. Uh, she's in Washington, D.C. I think the best explanation for that is not wanting to go to a trial, not wanting to face all that that might be. And also his lawyers have said that they don't think that he can get a fair trial. So at this point, you know, it seems like the best course of action would just be to to take a plea deal and hope for the best, hope that it doesn't end up in a long prison sentence. And do we know that there has been a deal struck in terms of uh, the sort of sentence he might expect to serve? Nothing has been reported on that yet. And I would imagine just based on the previous reporting, based on the investigator, the general who did his initial desertion investigation, it seems like the army may not be leaning toward a prison sentence in this case. And is that because of uh, Bergdahl's mental state at the moment or, or they just don't want to see him go to prison for their own reputational reasons? I think it's possible that they think maybe five years, you know, in a hostage situation in Pakistan with the Taliban or with the Haqqani network might have been punishment enough. And also there are some optics involved in, again, after someone has spent that much time in a hostage situation, then sending that person to prison, almost, you know, punishing him twice. Do we know what his state of mind is at the moment? I mean, I've read some reports suggesting that he is suffering from post-traumatic stress I can't imagine that he wouldn't be. And we know from his initial enlistment, you know, 11 years ago in the Coast Guard that he was separated for behavioral mental health issues. So it seems like this is a longstanding problem for him. And I'm sure after, again, five years in captivity, it wouldn't be any better. Uh, Does it mean the fact that there is no trial that many of the details may not be made public? And I suppose the key question, as ever, uh, why he wandered off? There will certainly be, I think, Freedom of Information Act to see what the Army's investigation found, what he said in his sworn statements and all of that. But it's true that, yes, under oath in front of a military judge with spectators in the courtroom, we won't hear his side of the story and what prosecutors would have presented as their case. And what is the best guess at the moment about why he he did what he did? What he told his parents, you know, soon before he left, what he said in emails, Um, and I guess what he had said offhandedly to some of his battle buddies in Afghanistan was that he was disillusioned with the army. He was disillusioned with what they were doing there. And he kind of wanted to maybe wander off and just be, you know, go off the grid. One of the guys in his unit said that he told him that he wanted to walk to India. So the likelihood that he left to join the Taliban or left to join some sort of Afghan resistance or Pakistani resistance is pretty unlikely. If anything, if it wasn't a mistake, if he really did leave, he probably just he was AWOL. He wasn't happy with what he was doing and he wanted to get out of there. So no evidence has emerged that he somehow went native and became a Taliban sympathizer, as some have alleged. I mean, President Trump called him a traitor, didn't he? Right. And whether President Trump is completely up on the story and has read, you know, he never said that he wanted to join the Afghans or wanted to join the Pakistanis. No one in his unit who he spoke to said that. 
And the army's investigation didn't find that either. What was the impact on his fellow soldiers? Because obviously search parties had to go out to try and find him. In the beginning, obviously, there's the diversion of resources, maybe, and all this attention put on finding him instead of the mission, the reason why they were there. The army hesitates to say that his disappearance was the cause of all of these people dying. But yes, six people in his battalion were killed during operations that had to do with finding him, patrols that were going out looking for him. And some say that there was a huge at a combat outpost nearby some say that the, the reason that happened is because they didn't have enough resources because people were looking for Burdell. Uh, and in the end, he was only freed in a prisoner swap. And five Taliban insurgents who were exchanged for him. Yes, it was five high-ranking members of the Taliban, yes. I'm just interested, finally, I mean, is your readership generally sympathetic to his plight, if you're able to gauge that? Not at all. Most people I know, most people in the army that I'm aware of, it's mostly they just, based on all of the collateral damage that he kind of inadvertently ended up causing, you know, none of them really have any support for him. And I doubt very much that he, you know, wants to stay in the army. He probably would like a discharge and to return to a quiet life um, in Idaho. And it would be so difficult for him to reintegrate back into the army and work with people because, again, everybody knows who he is and there's very little sympathy for what happened to him. Megan Myers from the Army Times speaking to me from Washington, D.C. The Spanish government has repeated its warning that it may suspend self-rule in the region of Catalonia later this week if the government there doesn't back down from declaring independence. It is the most serious constitutional crisis in Spain since the end of dictatorship in 1975. And yet for years it was another Spanish region that looked most likely to break away. Like Catalonia, the Basque country in northern Spain has its own language and a strong sense of identity. The violent conflict between the Basque separatists of ETA and the Spanish state saw more than a 1,000 people lose their lives. Well, six years ago, ETA declared a ceasefire. But nationalist sentiment hasn't gone away, especially in light of what's happening in Catalonia. As Paul Moss now reports. They hold a festival in the village of Lessica every year. It raises money for a local school, which teaches all lessons in the Basque language. There's a sponsored walk. And with temperatures still warm in this part of northern Spain, there's also time for traditional fiesta pursuits. This event is a celebration of all things Basque. Basque music, Basque food. There's quite a lot of the local wine flowing at the moment. But people here may have their minds on this region, but a lot of them are also thinking about events going on a few hundred kilometres away in Catalonia. The thing that's happened in Catalonia, the referendum in Catalonia, encourages me to fight for our rights in the Basque country, the right to decide our future. What do you think the effect will be of what happened in Catalonia? Catalans have opened a new way from the independence. We can get it here too in the Basque country. But at the moment it looks like the Catalans have at least temporarily backed away from declaring independence. They've suspended the declaration. Yes, but I think it has to continue. The Spanish government have to see that there are different countries in Spain and we want to be a free country, the Basque country. Those nationalist sentiments have now been given political expression, with one of the main Basque nationalist political parties outlining a series of demands for constitutional change. 
Speaking at the Basque Parliament building, the party Bildu said their regional authority should now include full control over education, social welfare and strategic infrastructure, with an eventual aim of full independence, if that's what Basque people want. A Bildu member of the regional parliament, Miren Larion, made it clear to me the time for asking may soon be over. They're prepared to take matters into their own hands. The Basque country has the right to decide all the things, and that's not allowed by the Spanish government. So we'll go to the Spanish government, we will try to get it, and when they say no, what are we going to do? That will be from the bilateral way to the unilateral way. If we have the majority of the society asking us for independence, it's our duty to make it happen in the same way as Catalonia. It's just a short distance inside the Basque Parliament building from the offices of the nationalist Bildu Party to the Conservative People's Party, which currently controls the national government in Madrid. But, of course, there is a huge ideological gulf which separates them. The People's Party has always opposed separatism in Spain, whether in the Basque Country or in Catalonia. And in the present political environment, the People's Party is certainly not keen on granting any more autonomy to the Basque region. My name is Alfonso Alonso, and I am the president of the People's Party in the Basque Country. 70% of Basque's population doesn't support independence of the Basque Country. People don't want, again, division like we had in times of terrorism. People stopped talking. Families were divided. We've been there. And now people want stability not to imitate what is happening now in Catalonia. It may be that only a minority at the moment want full independence for the Basque country, but can you see why those of a nationalist mindset would feel encouraged by what's happened in Catalonia? They have seen, as they see it, a regional parliament peacefully, unilaterally declare independence without any terrorism involved, and they're saying, well, we could do the same. Well, I think it's a problem of populism all over Europe. And in the territories that has nationalist feeling, populism takes this form. Want to break up, want to separate, but I think that they are against the rule of law. They want to impose their will. So I, I think now in the Basque country we have a very big chance. After 40 years of terrorism, we have a chance to forget our differences. People look at Catalonia and don't want here. Sitting on the harbour side in San Sebastian, a city which saw so many of the worst attacks during the years of ETA terrorism, I talked about the past and the present with a man who's very much witnessed it. And Chincheretta reported on nationalist-related violence as a local journalist. He still visibly winces when I raise the subject. But Ander is encouraged by what's happened in Catalonia, not because he thinks the Basque country can or should copy its unilateral independence declaration, but because he believes the Catalan approach will have a moderating influence on a region so prone to the extreme. For many, many years here in the Basque country, we were trapped, you know, in a cycle of violence. Meanwhile, in Catalonia, they worked for many years to develop their culture, develop a nation, and a national identity. You know, in Catalonia, they obtained much, much more than what Basque people obtained after many years of violence. 
causing suffering is not the way, and that's a very good lesson. Journalist Andrew Cinceretta ending that report uh, by the BBC's Paul Mosk in the Basque Country in northern Spain. Uh, meanwhile, an update on the ongoing drama in Catalonia. In the past hour, the High Court in Spain has ordered that two pro-independence Catalan leaders be remanded in custody while they're investigated for possible sedition. Uh, the men are accused of playing a key role in planning this month's independence referendum, which the uh, Spanish government uh, considers illegal. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. Do stay with us. Still more to come. Let's take a look, uh, meanwhile, at what's coming up on the BBC World Service with Debbie Russ. After NewsHour, the why factor looks at why we hold our breath. The area of the lungs is huge because the way that oxygen gets into the bloodstream is through diffusion, and that has to happen over a very short distance. Then the conversation brings together two casting directors... I don't like to judge an actor on the way they handle themselves before the audition because most of the time they're really nervous. So at least one reading of the page before we can really make a decision. And at 23 GMT, it's the Arts Hour. Here's Nikki Beatty. It's film, film, film today. Swedish director Thomas Alfredson talks new film The Snowman and we'll hear from Polish filmmaker Dorota Kobiela about her work of art film Loving Vincent. Just some of the highlights here on the BBC World Service. A reminder of our main story here on NewsHour. Iraqi government forces have taken control of the previously Kurdish-held city of Kirkuk after a brief military operation. Thousands of civilians have fled, as we've been hearing from our correspondent in the city, Ola Gerin. We've seen people with bedding and belongings on top of their cars. We've seen people with frightened children on their laps. We've just had a bus go by. An elderly woman who was almost in tears told us that she didn't dare to remain in the city. Also today, a car bomb in Malta has killed an investigative journalist who had highlighted alleged government corruption. Two Catalan separatists have been remanded in custody by Spain's high court, suspected of sedition. And the US says elections for state governors in Venezuela were neither free nor fair. This is James Menendez with NewsHour. Two Venezuelan now in the grip of a devastating economic crisis and a political standoff between the government of President Nicolas Maduro and his opponents. You'll remember weeks of often violent street protests earlier this year. Well, on Sunday, there were elections for state governorships and contrary to all expectations, the government won the vast majority of them, 17 out of 23. The opposition is refusing to accept the results. They're crying foul, as is the US State Department, which has criticised what it sees as a lack of free and fair elections. Well, the BBC's Will Grant was watching the results as they came in. As the results came in, it was clear that this would be a comprehensive victory for the government. One by one, the states were named and one by one they went to the candidates in red. President Nicolas Maduro immediately appeared on state television, surrounded by his inner circle and military leaders. Chavismo is back victorious, he told them, before urging the opposition to recognise the result too. In fact, his opponents were already calling fraud. Mr Maduro's government has only garnered around 20% support in recent polls, 
so this overwhelming victory brings with it more uncertainty and the real possibility of further conflict ahead. At least the vote itself passed off peacefully. Earlier in the day, residents of Petare, a vast shantytown in eastern Caracas, were met by a cacophony when they turned out to cast their ballots. Salsa, blasted at them on loudspeakers at a pro-government stand, was being drowned out by more salsa from opposition supporters. But beyond a clash of two sound systems, most Venezuelans are trapped in a conflict of two opposing political systems too. Doña Maria Vais has been loyal to the Chavez government from the very beginning and still describes it as the light at the end of the tunnel for Venezuela's poor. We cannot lose this. It has cost us too much. Before, nobody ever took care of the poor people. No government ever cared for them. She bristled at the opposition's suggestion that the government was blackmailing people into voting for them by threatening to stop the subsidised food parcels called CLAP. No, no, para nada. Para nada. No, 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 no. No, no, not at all. We have seen very good times, but if this is necessary, we will cope as well, because there are good times and bad times. Her neighbour, an opposition activist called Bete Diaz, sees Venezuela's economic chaos as more than just the opposite of good times. She sees it as terminal decline and believes a change is urgently needed. What people are earning is not enough to buy food, and this is happening to the reds, greens, blues, yellows. The people should move forward. We can't stick with this situation at the moment. This is our chance, our chance to go out and vote. In the end, the government candidate took the state of Miranda, as well as the vast majority of others in Venezuela. But as jubilant Maduro supporters danced in the plazas, this result may have repercussions outside Venezuela's borders. The Trump administration is sure to side with the opposition and call this election fraudulent. Washington may then choose to extend the economic sanctions it's already placed on the Venezuelan government. Will Grant reporting there. For the second time this year, Portugal is dealing with deadly wildfires ravaging the country's densely wooded rural areas. More than 30 people are known to have been killed in the northern and central regions, according to the authorities. Unusually hot autumn weather and strong winds from Hurricane Ophelia have contributed to the spread of the flames. Well, Jose Constantino lives in one badly hit village. It was about 20 past midnight. It was a hurricane of flames. There are no words to describe it, no words. It was so strong. The houses burned, the animals are dead, the farming machinery has been destroyed as well. Next door to here is a company with trucks and machines. Everything burned, everything. I don't know what to say. Well, Pedro Ivo Carvalho is a senior journalist at the Porto-based newspaper Jornal. De Noticias, he says that just a few months on from the fires that claimed the lives of 64 people, Portugal is still coming to grips with what's happened this time around. So far, we have 35 or 36 people killed, 56 injured, some of those in serious condition, and seven people missing. The fires were especially in the north, in the centre of the country, in four or five districts, 
and uh, it has occurred in, in areas that are with many plantations and forests. So Portugal is still shocked by the size of the, the forest fire and the impacts that uh, it had on, on human lives. Poor forest management, uh, means of combat poorly coordinated, and prevention that has not had yet the necessary effects. It's a very complicated situation, and the country is yet trying to realize in depth what really happened this past weekend. Yes, just in terms mm-hmm. of the response by the emergency services, are they struggling to deal with this? Yeah, um, it was a, a problem of political response and lack of coordination in the field. We had a national tragedy about four months ago with the death of uh, 64 people in Pedrogon Grande, it's an area in the center of the country. We made some reports. They both reached at the same conclusion that the human failures have resulted in loss of human life. So we have a political problem, how to deal with this lack of capacity to handle with the fires. And we had the problem of the prevention and the, the forest management. Yes, and, uh, and tell me a little bit more about that then. There are lots of forests in Portugal. What, what is the problem? Is it that they're not putting in the, the right fire breaks to stop fires spreading when they start? If you see, we have public forests and we have private forests. And with a private forest, there are no problems because they clean the soil, they cut the trees, and there are no problems with uh, the private forest in Portugal. The problem is that the great part of the land is from properties that don't take care of the land. So we are now discussing also the need to strengthen the panel code in order to become more musculate, the response to those who don't clean the terrains and those who are caught starting fires Today, the police caught one man, and yesterday they caught another one that were responsible for two of the biggest fires in this weekend. I've been writing about this for the past 10 years, and the, the problems are identified, the causes are identified, but government after government, the problem is not resolved. The needed reforms that last uh, at least a generation don't succeed. Portuguese journalist Pedro Ivo Carvalho uh, talking to me about those uh, fires that have killed well over 30 people uh, in Portugal. And that is it for this edition of News Hour. From me and the rest of the team here in London, thanks for, be- for listening. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Bye-bye. News Hour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.